0: going to continue this series of messages on common ground, and particularly uh, as we think about uh, all that is going on in our nation and what does it look like for us to be uh, the the people of God in a a moment uh, like this. We talked about what the Bible has to say about race, and we looked at the fact that we're all part of uh, God's creation, and that which unites us is far, far more than that which uh, divides us, and we are all part of the human race, and if we are in Jesus Christ, we are all equal at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, and we have so much in commonality, even if our if we have some distinction in the uh, the pigmentation of our skin or uh, the amount of uh, melanin. Now, last week, we, we talked about uh, what the Bible says about racism. Racism is a sin that focuses on uh, our differences as something to divide us instead of something uh, that enriches us. And We talked about uh, replacing racism with gracism, bringing God to bear. In order to do that, we've got to face our fears. We've got to face our own particular history. Uh, We need to to stretch and be educated and learn. Uh, We need to uh, adopt new ways of thinking and speaking and praying together. And then the R in our little acrostic fear was to build relationships, that we have to build relationships uh, across those different lines that, that help us to see and experience one another as human beings. But you know, as we continue even as a culture to try to lean into these tough issues, it's just hard to have a conversation, isn't it? It's hard to have a civil conversation about race or it's seemingly about almost anything else in our world Right now, And I think there are perhaps lots of challenges to that. Challenges that make it even more difficult to have a helpful conversation around race or almost any other subject right now. And one of the challenges is what has been called an argument culture. An argument culture. Sociologist Deborah Tannen in her book The Argument, argument Culture says, it's as if we approach everything with a warlike mentality. So we end up looking at the world and people in an adversarial frame of mind. How do we explore an idea? We debate. How do we cover the news? We find people who express the most extreme, polarizing views, and we present them in a little ongoing debate fashion to argue back and forth. How do we settle a dispute? You go to litigation, which pits one party against the other. And then you fuel that with the web, and particularly social media, which has become almost a social and cultural street fight, hadn't it? I mean, so much so that we've had to invent new words in our English language, right? Uh, trolling, right, we, we have new words to come up to describe the way that we interact with and treat one another on social media. It seems like we don't even care who we do it to. Take shots at anyone, even people we should be supporting, not caring how or where our words land. And I wish I could say that the church community was immune to this, but it is not. And if you frequent social media sites that are purportedly Christian, you find some of the the same behaviors taking place. Now, please, please, please hear me. There is a radical difference between making an argument for a point of view and having an argument as in having a fight. We should articulate our points of view, but that's different from having a fight. We live in an argument culture, but we also live in what has been described as a culture of offense. A culture of offense. John Brevere calls this the bait of Satan. And it is a bait. It is a trap because while a particular offense might be real, we don't have to be offended, right? And we... Choose, even think about the language we use, right? I'm uh, taking offense, I'm getting offended, I'm becoming offended. Our language even tells us we know it is something that we are choosing to do. And when we make that choice, it's kind of like we're just feeding hurt and anger, resentment, bitterness, and hatred. And it just fuels insults, attacks, wounding, division, arguments, and broken relationships. And in a culture of offense, in an argument culture, we wonder, why is it so hard to have a civil, productive conversation? In their book, Crucial Conversations, the authors of that book talk about three characteristics of crucial conversations, and I'll just give them to you quickly. It's a a great uh, read, not necessarily from a faith perspective, but but some really, really good insights in there. Uh, But crucial conversations, whether it's about race or in your home or in your business or anywhere else. Opinions vary, stakes are high, and emotions run strong. Does that sound like some of the conversations we're trying to have in our culture right now? A variety of opinions and the stakes are high and emotions run very, very, very strong. And in their book, they certainly have some some great ways to help us navigate those crucial conversations. But I want us to look at God's word and talk about how do we have a better conversation How do we have a better conversation, whether that's in your home, whether that's in your business, whether that's in the church, whether that's in our culture as we talk about some of these difficult, difficult issues? How do we have a better conversation? And the first thing is to seek first to understand. Passage in James we looked at even in the first week, but I want to keep bringing it back before us. Know this. My beloved brothers, you and I who claim the name of Jesus Christ, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If we could just practice that one verse, (laughs) we would have made tremendous progress in having a better conversation. But as we think about that, let me try to make that very, very practical for us and then even talk about some applications. I think there are some questions that help, questions to ask yourself and then questions to ask of another as you set yourself to be quick to listen, to seek first, to understand. So ask yourself, what do I really want? What is it that I really want? What do I want to see happen? What do I want to see happen in this conversation? What do I want to see happen in our business and our family and this, this setting and our culture, whatever it is? What do I really want? Because sometimes people are arguing back and forth and they just start shouting at each other, and it's kind of like, what, what do you really want? I mean, what would help this be better? What would fix this? What would move the ball down the field a little bit? What's the direction? What do I really want? It's just good to be aware of that personally. And then, why would, she think about engaging in a difficult conversation, why would, and I got this from the Crucial Conversation folks, why would a reasonable, rational, decent person think, say, think, or believe this? Now, I know some of you are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Some of the things I've seen on TV and stuff, some of the things I've seen on my social media feed, those folks aren't reasonable, rational, or decent, right? Well, maybe not, but can we start by giving one another the benefit of the doubt? Just because somebody disagrees with you doesn't mean they're not reasonable, rational, and even decent. And what if we just started from that place? of just being willing to ask the question. Just because they see this differently doesn't mean they're irrational. It just means they have a different perspective. So why would a reasonable, rational, decent person say this, think this, or believe this? That kinda sets the stage. And then to begin to ask of another. If you wanna understand, just ask some questions. One of my favorites is help me to understand. I think I probably use that almost every week. Help me to understand. Help me to understand. Help me to understand why you did that. Help me to understand why you thought that was a good idea. Help me to understand where you were coming from on that. Help me to understand. Help me to understand. And then, as a part of that, what do you mean by? And sometimes you combine those. Help me to understand, what do you mean by? Because what I have found is that a great challenge to having the conversations that we're trying to have in our culture is we use the same vocabulary, but we have different dictionaries. We have the same vocabulary, we may use the same words, but the meaning behind those words is radically, radically different. So let me just try on a few. Black Lives Matter. Just in saying that phrase, almost every one of us in the room has a reaction There are thoughts that rush to our head. There are perhaps pictures that come to our mind. There's emotions we begin to experience internally. Black lives matter. What do you mean when you say black lives matter? Well, it's a gospel issue. Black lives matter, of course black lives matter. Our brothers and sisters are made in the image of God. We established that as we went back to Genesis. Black lives matter because Jesus died for them. Black lives are a beautiful part of God's creation. They make up an essential and beautiful part of the body of Christ. Of course, black lives matter. Well, why should we say that then? Well, Albert Moeller offers a kind of a helpful uh, comparison. He says, think back, if you would, to the 20th century. Think back if you were in Germany in the 1930s and into the 1940s with the rise of the Nazi party. And with the rise of the Nazi party, even before formal war broke out, there was an increasing anti-Semitism. And of course, that anti-Semitism eventually led to concentration camps, and the genocide of the Holocaust. In that context, it would have been very, very appropriate to say, Jewish lives matter. Not because British lives didn't matter or French lives didn't matter or because Protestant lives didn't matter or Catholic lives didn't matter. Of course, all lives mattered. But there was a unique threat in that cultural moment to Jewish lives. And so it would be appropriate to say Jewish lives matter. Fast forward into the 21st century. And we realize that there are still some particular dangers to a part of humanity. In this case, we have some real urgent moral concerns about the lives and the well-beings of black Americans in our midst. And it can't be wrong in that context to say black lives matter as a sentence. And so if we're in a conversation, you say black lives matter, I say, well, help me to understand, what do you mean by Black Lives Matter? And if you could begin to articulate something along those lines, I would say absolutely. I am in full agreement with you. And in this cultural moment, if that's the understanding, it's certainly an appropriate thing to say. However, we also realize that that phrase has more than one meaning. For other folks, it's not just a sentence. It's not just a statement about the value of people. It is about a particular organization and a website that have been hijacked by some political operatives whose worldview and policy prescriptions would be deeply, deeply at odds with most followers of Jesus Christ. So there becomes the struggle. What do you mean when you say Black Lives Matter? Do you mean that I have to sign on with everything that organization stands for? All the policy prescriptions it's putting forth? All the values that seem to be the antithesis of some scriptural values at points? Then no. I can't affirm that. But I don't know until I know what you mean or what I mean when you say black lives matter. Help me to understand. Okay, since I'm dancing in the minefield, let me take one more here, all right? Defund the police. What do you mean by defund the police? I mean, I guess there's some on a real, real, real fringe who would say we would just be better off if suddenly every police department was closed down. I got to think those are few and far between. But I don't like that phrase because I first of all think it's very unhelpful. It says something that I don't think the vast, vast, vast majority of us would want to say. And I think it is also deeply disrespectful to the many public servants who bravely put themselves in harm's way every day to protect us. What do you mean when you say defund the police? Is that not to say we don't need to look at some of our systems and structures? Absolutely. Are there areas where perhaps our policing practices are in need of updating? Absolutely. Let's have those conversations. Let's enter in. But you know what I've discovered? I'll just put this in, in terms of for myself. Do you know, as a, as a minister, as a pastor, who hates the most, who cringes the most when a pastor's been caught in a scandal of some sort or the other, whether that's moral, financial, whatever it is? It's other pastors. (laughs) And and even even when we would tend to take up defense for one another because we kind of know what one another's been through, but we also take heightened offense when someone misuses their position. Because not only is it wrong and not only were there direct victims of that, but it just kind of smears everybody else. Those who have tried to serve faithfully and sacrificially get painted with the same brush stroke as the few. And I think we have to be careful when we think about expressions like defund the police. Who is the most probably hurt and offended when there is a quote unquote bad cop? The good cops the men and women who are putting their lives on the line and sacrificing every single day. Let's not paint everybody with that same broad brushstroke. Now, I know I spent a lot of time there, but that was on purpose. Because I think if we could just get clarity sometimes on what do you mean by, we would move this thing miles down the road. What do you mean by, and then as a follow-up, let me see if I understand you on this. Let me see if I understand you all this. Let me see if I understand what you meant by that. I wanna be able to kind of articulate in a way that you would agree with, yes, you do kinda understand my perspective. I may not agree with it, but at least you feel like I have understood that. And then another question i often find helpful is, how did you come to that conclusion? Just how did you come to that conclusion? I'm not, I'm not trying to, to interrogate, it's just, I want, you probably had a journey to that. Some of it may be your personal story. Some of it may be uh, the facts or information that I, I've never accessed before, I've just not even been aware of. So how did you come to that conclusion? And, and please hear my heart on this in asking these questions of another. The object here is to be a student, not a critic. The object is not, I'm going to find find one little chink in that armor, and then I'm going to go for it. No, 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 no. It's to be a student. I want to learn. I want to be quick to listen. Quick to listen. Number two, understand The power of words. Understand the power of words. And I think this is pretty self-explanatory to most of us, so let me just remind you of a couple of the many, many, many references to this in Scripture. Proverbs 12 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Just a reminder from Scripture that words are powerful. Words have shape. Words give life and death. Words can puncture like the thrust of a sword, or they can bring healing like a a scalpel in the hands of a skilled surgeon. Words are powerful. And you may be spouting them off without thinking But that does not diminish the power of those words in the life of another. And my guess is all of us can think back over the course of our life and we can think of the power of words. We can think of words that somebody spoke into our life and they they brought healing, they brought hope, they brought encouragement, they brought fresh perspective. And maybe easier to remember are words that cut, that demeaned the diminished that still sometimes whisper in the back of your head in those crucial moments in your life understand the power of words and if you understand the power of words then you understand that you and I have to steward well steward well The power of words. Because words are so powerful, those of us created in the image of God, God whose word speaks and things happen, things are created, he has entrusted to us as his image bearer the power of words, and we are called to steward it well. A soft answer, Proverbs says, turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. One more. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. When Paul is writing to this group of followers of Christ in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter four, he, he's talking to them and about unity in the body of Christ. And he's talking about the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. And in verse 29, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good, For building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Have you ever thought that your words have the power to grieve the Holy Spirit? They're not just throwaways. But they're powerful tools to be stewarded well. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If you're going to steward well the power of words, you and I need to think before we speak. Think before we speak. T-H-I-N-K. Let's just let that be our guide. Just some great questions uh, to help us steward well, powerful words. Is it true? T, is it true? Is, is what I'm about to say, is what I'm about to share true? How do I know that it's true? How confident am I Is true? Well, I saw it on my friend's social media feed. Oh, well, then of course. Well, why should we ask, right? Is it true? true what if what if I stopped myself from saying things until I knew they were true some of us have a lot less to say wouldn't we (laughs) is it true I mean it's a great question not only is it true but is it helpful Is this helpful? Did did you see there in Ephesians, he talked about about the the word, such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. (laughs) Are these words going to do that? Do these words fit the occasion? Do these words build up? Do these words give grace to those who hear? Now that doesn't mean it's always gonna be an easy thing to hear. But is it helpful? Is it going to help them become the person that God's called them to be? Is it going to help them grow? Is it going to help them to become aware of a rough edge that needs to be addressed? Is it true? And is it helpful? And then the I is, is it intentional? Is it intentional? And let me unpack this for just a little bit. What is the intention of my words? What is my purpose in sharing this? Is it intentional in purpose? Am I doing this just to fill dead space, or is there a purpose, is there an intention behind these words, especially important in crucial conversations? If you're just shooting the breeze, it probably doesn't matter all that much, right? We're just kind of telling stories with each other. We're getting to know each other. But in a crucial conversation, what is my purpose in sharing this? And then am I intentional in my tone? What is my tone in saying this? You can say the same words with a different tone and communicate radically different things, can't you? And probably all of us have at times pleaded our innocence. Well, this is all I said. Well, it wasn't exactly about your vocabulary. It was about the tone that you brought to those words? Am I intentional in my tone? And then, am I intentional about who am I speaking to and when and where I'm speaking to them? Am I saying this to the right person in the right way? Too often our conversations are to the wrong person in the wrong setting at the wrong time. Am I saying this to the right person? Am I speaking directly to someone? Am I doing this in the right way? Do you know that maybe the best way to communicate sometimes is gonna require more than 140 characters? In fact is, there are times when an email, even one that is a small epistle in size, is not the best way to communicate, right? Sometimes you ought to pick up a phone. Sometimes you ought to get face to face. Am I saying this to the right person, intentionally? And is this intentionally the right way? The N is, is it necessary? Is this necessary? I mean, if my goal is to build up, is to give that which fits the occasion, that it might give grace, is it necessary? Not everything that I think needs to be said, Right? <laughs> We've got a couple grandchildren and the one's very verbal and the one's getting very verbal very quick. And one of the things you realize about a five-year-old is that there is very little filter between here and here, right? I mean, it's like what pops in here is coming out here very, very quickly, right? All right? Well, that's cute in a five-year-old. Not so cute in a 35 year old, right? Sometimes they just have to ask is this really necessary? Does it help? I mean, is this necessary for them or is it more about my ego? Is this necessary? And then the K is it kind? Is it kind? And you could put loving in there, but it would mess up the acrostic there, but is it kind, is it loving? And please, please hear me. There is a difference between kind and nice, right? We have kind of almost a disease of nice in the church sometimes among those who are followers of Christ. It's like, well, I don't want to say that because it'll hurt their feelings or I don't want to say that because they might get offended or I don't want to say that because of whatever reason. And we're, 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 we're almost afraid. But you know, sometimes to be unclear is to be unkind. Sometimes... To not say something that should be said directly, lovingly, privately is not kind, it's chicken. It's abdicating my responsibility as a brother or as a sister in Christ to help build up as fits the occasion. Be kind, but being kind, being loving may mean that you speak the truth in love even if at times it's a hard truth to hear and someone may feel like you're not being nice we're called not to be nice but to be loving to be kind and then if we're going to engage in crucial conversations the reality is we're going to nick each other along the way we're going to hurt each other. We're going to, we're going to missteward the power of words. We're going, to, we're going to prick when we did not even intend to or sometimes when we intended to. And because of that, we have to extend grace and forgiveness. We have to extend grace and forgiveness to each other. Did you notice the last verse that we read there in Ephesians 4? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That we have to forgive. Because if we don't, then we're stuck in what Ephesians talked about, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. And the only way to move beyond that is not we have to be perfect, but we have to be full of grace and with the capacity to forgive. Let me give you a picture of that happened just months ago. It's a picture of someone saying the wrong thing, a racially hurtful thing, owning it, dealing with it personally, with apology, with regret, and the other person, the offended person, reacting with civility, refusing to take offense in a way that bred hostility or division. Here's what happened. Jason Hackett, Alex Housden are co-anchors for the morning news show at Channel 5 in Oklahoma City. Hackett is black, Housden is white. As part of their morning show one morning. They were showing some video footage from uh, the Oklahoma City Zoo. And it was of this this baby Western lowland gorilla, and he was kind of mugging for the camera and just doing all this stuff. And they were kind of good naturedly having some comments back and forth. And then Howlsden said, just offhand, he looks a lot like you. Yes, that's what she said. She told her black co-anchor, "He looked like a gorilla." Now, the context of that is powerful. That slur comparing black people, particularly those of African descent, to monkeys, gorillas, or apes, has long been entrenched in the history of racism. And viewers were outraged. They called for her to be fired. Social media lit up. Some folks expressing horror, some folks using it to troll the the flames of racism. But the next day, the two anchors addressed it themselves. And this is how it went.
1: A message from KSU's Alex Housden and Jason Hackett. I'm here this morning because I want to apologize, not only to my co anchor, Jason, but to our entire community. I said something yesterday that was inconsiderate, it was inappropriate, and I hurt people. And I want you to know. I understand how much I hurt you out there and how much I hurt you. I love you so much. And you have been one of my best friends for the past year and a half. And I would never do anything on purpose to hurt you. And I love our community. And I want you all to know from the bottom of my heart, I apologize for what I said. I know it was wrong. And I am so sorry. Oh. Alex, thank you very much. And I I, I do accept your apology. And I I do appreciate your apology. Um, I want to let everybody out there know that Alex um, is one of my best friends. I mean, we do what we do here. And, and, you know, it's not as if we see each other here and then we leave and we go home. We talk every day, or almost every other day. Um, I've told you things. I've I've shared things with you as a friend. And I I do appreciate you and I do love you. Um, All that being said, Uh, and Alex will be the first to admit this to you, what she said yesterday was wrong. Um, It cut deep for me and it cut deep for a lot of you in the community. I've heard the the phone calls and I've heard the Facebook messages as well. And and, and I guess coming out of this, I want this to be a teachable moment. And that that lesson here is that words words matter. There's no doubt about that. Um, Changing demographics here in this country, the demographics are changing. We're becoming a more diverse country. and and there's no excuse we have to understand uh the stereotypes we have to understand uh, each other's backgrounds and the words uh, that hurt the words that cut deep and we have to find a way to replace those words with love and words of affirmation um as well um you know what we do here as broadcasters uh, we use words words are the the tools of our trade much like a know a plumber would use a wrench or a doctor would use a scalpel we use words and and our goal and what we need to do is use those words not not to hurt and not to divide uh, but to build a more perfect union. and uh this is been a journey for us we're learning things here and uh we at koco5 hope that you join us along on this journey thank you guys very much
0: Friends, that's what it's going to take. If there's going to be racial reconciliation if we're going to move forward as a culture. We have to have better conversations. The key is going to be for white people and black people and Asian people and Hispanic people to relate to each other as human beings, to get to know one another, to understand one another, to listen to one another, to talk to one another, to forgive one Another. We have to have better conversations. But as we think about that, I also want you to realize one important truth. And that is that words are not only powerful in in their impact, but words are powerful because they reveal. They reveal something of who we are as a person, they reveal our character, our heart. And that's not my idea, that's Jesus. Jesus said, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus told, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks Said another way, it's a matter of the heart before it's ever, ever, ever a matter of the mouth. It's a matter of the heart and the heart reveals and one of the things that maybe some of us just need to ask ourselves is is what are my conversations reveal about my heart? If I constantly find myself in the midst of gossip, whether hearing or passing along or feeding or whatever, what does that say about my heart? if I constantly find myself in arguments, what does that say about my heart? Because it's a matter of the heart. A long, long, long time before it's a matter of the mouth. And what's really going to heal our world is not just better conversational skills, as hopeful as those might be, but transformed hearts. That is why when we have all of these conversations, we have to bring it back to the gospel. For it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is our hope that is the hope to transform hearts that will transform the way we relate to and the way that we speak with and about one another. And it is this heart transformation that God has been about since our rebellion in the Garden of Eden. The Old Testament pointed forward to it. Ezekiel put it this way, speaking as God's messenger, I will sprinkle clean water on you And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, that he wants to do this heart transplant, this heart transformation in our lives so that we become what Paul talked about. Those who are in Jesus Christ are brand new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come Listen, I I hope some of the things I've tried to share this morning will be helpful to you in having better conversations. But we won't have the best conversations until we have a transformed heart. And that only comes when we recognize our need and we respond to God's provision. We recognize that I personally have rebelled and sinned against God. I've rejected his authority. I've rebelled against his love. And that separated me from him now and for all eternity. But God intervened. We forgive as he has forgiven us. And Jesus came and lived the life that I should have lived, was called to live, was created to live. He died the death that I deserve to die because of my sin and rebellion against a holy God, because of his rejecting his love. He he went to that cross. He was buried. He rose again the third day, has ascended to the Father. He is coming back someday to establish the fullness of his kingdom. And he invites you and I to be a part of that forever family by repenting of our sin, turning from our sin and placing our faith and trust in the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ and inviting him to come in and resume his place as the rightful leader and Lord of our life from this point forward and asking him to do what he purposes to do and that is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, to transform us from the inside out And if that has never been your experience, or you say, Jeff, I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about, or I would like to continue that conversation, please, please, please reach out to us. Even before you leave today, reach out to us, or reach out, send an email, or pick up a phone, uh, reach out to us via social media. However it is, we wanna come alongside you. We want you to experience the one relationship that will change every relationship in your life, and that is the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ for new creations are called to be a part of that new community. And I come back to where we started this series. This new community that will be continually imperfect as long as we're still operating in this sin-scarred world. But that new community, that's fullness and fulfillment is going to come. Revelation 7, that picture we looked at a couple weeks ago. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There is no division. There is no racism. There is no otherism. There is no us and them. There is all these things that divide pale in comparison to the one who sits enthroned, to the Lamb who is worthy. And it is Him that begins this new community. Now we're not there yet. And so, in the meantime, the new creation connected to one another in a new community lives by a new commandment, a new commandment that He gave to us that we love one another. Just Jesus said, As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love. For one another. That is our calling. In a world of hatred, in a world of division, in a world of strife, in a world of us and them, to love as Jesus loved. Let me close with a quote from Daniel Henderson. Daniel said Our biggest problem is not the pervasiveness of the darkness. But the failure of the light. And I've been doing this for a few years. And this is what I know in most churches that if you want to get a lot of applause lines, a lot of attaboys, a lot of amens in a message in most churches, curse the darkness. Curse the darkness. Because we like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's over there. That's not our primary calling. Our primary calling is not to curse the darkness, but to be the light. Jesus said, Matthew five, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We got enough folks cursing the darkness. How about if the people of God shine the light of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying ignore problems, ignore sin. I'm saying let's live in such a way that we show and share the love and the light of Jesus Christ. That's the hope of the world. Let's pray to him together, please. Oh, Father. Thank you for loving us when we were other, when we were separated from you, when we we disregarded you, when we rebelled against you, and we even rejected your love. And Father, thank you that you are still working in our lives. And Father, even in this moment, that this crazy year that seems so out of control and has has shaken our foundations and and confronted us with things we'd rather not be confronted with. Father, thank you that you are still on the throne, that you still are at work. And Lord, in this critical moment, you are perhaps calling us like we've never been called in our lifetime to shine as the light of the world, to be the new creation in a new community making a difference in the world. And so, Father, we ask you, show us how we can be a part, not of just cursing the darkness, but of being the light of the world. We can only do this in relationship with and dependence upon you. And we pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.